Today on Pence Exchange, autocratic rule in Imperial China. What are the long-lasting effects of persecutory regimes? Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Melanie Shu. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Economic History at the London School of Economics. Previously, she taught at New York University Abu Dhabi. Melanie received her bachelor's degree at Fudan University in China and her PhD in economics from George Mason University. She also was a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University and at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research interests include political economy, gender, and early modern and modern Chinese history. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Fernando, for introducing me. So, how does state repression affect trust in the long run? In the 17th century China, the Qing regime persecuted individuals for speech crimes against the state through literary inquisitions. The effects of these policies are still felt today. The persecution targeted intellectuals, diminishing its reputation. It also affected the operation of charitable organizations. Through time, they amplified distrust among people and increased apathy towards local governance. Today, Melanie will talk in detail about her research. Melanie, what would you say, to put, this in, to put your research into context, what would you say is the main difference between state repression in post-20th century regimes compared with pre-modern polities like the one you are studying today? Is it just having different technological capabilities, or is there a deeper difference in terms of scope and goals behind the repression? Yes, and that's a great question. So uh, to me, I think the goal of the pre-modern states and the modern states do not differ. Like They're not like a fundamental different species, especially if we're looking at early modern states. So they're actually surprisingly modern, especially in, in terms of the objective they have and the cope and then they can stay in power. I think there is uh, just like more similarities and differences in that regard. And then I think you made a very good point about the technological constraints, which in I think in my paper, this works in my favor because one of the goals obviously is to identify the effects of the persecution, which would be much harder to do in the modern context, given all this the information diffusion process would be very different. So you have one persecution, the next day the whole country will know about it. So then the usual techniques you use to try to identify the effects through regional variation will not be effective. So I think in that regard, um, yeah, like the pre-modern setting does allow me to study those effects of the repression, especially in the long run. So, for example, in, in the past, as in the present, you would say that the goal of the persecutors is just to stay in power. In the case of China, yeah. So, so I think this um, it has a lot to do with understanding the nature of the, the pre-modern Chinese state, which I think it, it is true. I, mean, I happen to be teaching this today as well, this, like how the, the Chinese state... Um, has this very somewhat different features, I guess, from the European states. Um, so it is it's surprisingly centralized in that in that sense, and it does have. Um, so I think probably also for this reason, right, it makes it look surprisingly similar to those 20th century uh, modern states in in its um, in its objective. 
So you explore a specific historical period after the establishment of the Qing dynasty in the mid-17th century. Before talking about the specific problems behind your work, I wonder if you could briefly elaborate on the historical details and the context on how first the Ming period ended and then how the Qing started. Yeah, so... Um, so so um so the general history and um, i think you know useful to understanding this historical event i think the key point is that it was different ethnic groups and then it happens that the rule the political rule and traditionally relies on a small elite that has like a disunified identity and then they really emphasize these differences between them and others and then the Qing rulers happens to be a group of people they identify as others so this doesn't even require the Qing to be present. So the way before this, this is more or less decided by the time of 1000 AD. So by that point, it was already very clear you got this small intellectual elite that is going to view anything that's similar to the Qing rulers to be the others. So in terms of the transition, um, so there was the first about 50 years of time, some of the back and the forth between the Ming and the Qing um, so they were still a group of nomads at the time, so they didn't really have the political power yet. Um, so then there was about 50 years of time. So you had like periodically uh, one side make some advances and then the main would be uh, initially, especially was pretty good at fighting them off. But then gradually because of the famine and the disasters and the little ice age, so they become much weaker. And then eventually I think it wasn't, wasn't really the, um, the Qing nomads or the Manchus, right? So it was really the, the peasants it was in the main that taught um, that uh, the decisive move, and then eventually that the main was falling apart, and then that was the point when the Qing uh, came uh, came south of the Great Wall and then took over the power. So, in terms of the differences, how would you describe the war? So, it was not, of course, just a dynastic succession, like you said. So, it was basically a transition between ethnic minorities at the top. Well, the Ming were Han Chinese, correct, and the the Qing were were Manchu. So, I think this actually has two steps. So, in the first step, so the cause of the of the um, collapse of the Ming Empire is actually very similar to any dynastic transition, right? However, the ones who did came into power was the ethnic minority. So there is this two step, and because the peasants were not good at seizing onto the power in the long run, and then I guess the, the Manchus were very lucky and being around precisely at the point when and the previous region has disappeared. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, the, um, the, the relationship between the, the minority rule and the, the high majority, I think this is, makes it a very different case from the previous times when, when the Chinese had most of the historical periods. Um, and with the exception of the Yuan period, right? So that's uh, it's less than a hundred years. So, but other historical periods, they always had this high majority of being the, the legitimate rulers. If there was a structural governance change between the two regimes, or if it was just a, a, a the Manchu looking to legitimize his ruler towards certain policies. I see. Um, so the, uh, a big difference. So uh, by and large, the Qing has been trying to use similar policies and uh, a political structure as the previous dynasty. Because partly is because I think it realizes its own tribe structure it wouldn't really work for this agri agrarian empire. But at the same time, it also has a few differences. So, so for one, 
they had a, a due track. So to be official, you can take the exam, um, which is most of the Han Chinese would be doing, or you can just be a mentor elite. Then there's like slots were set aside for the mentor elites. So this is very different. So you have the same old bureaucracy, but they have two group of people. So which obviously caused some of the issues. Um, and then there's also is it has like, um, so in order to actually be more centralized and not to have to trust the high elites in important positions. So I think the emperor also trying to like just engage in some of this direct rule. Actually going into uh, quite quite extremes, by, especially by the time of the Yongzhen Empire. So that's like before the Qianlong period. So he started to have those directed contacts with the people at like the county level, which I don't think it happened before. So before it would be, so you have the, the emperor and then you have the provincial leaders and the governors, and then you have the the, you know, the prefecture or the county rulers. But I think that one of the reform he, he, he did was just like trying to weaken all these stages in between and trying to like build contacts directly with the, the county rulers, which is the lowest level of administration at the time. Yeah. Okay, great. In your paper, you explored the repression through literary inquisitions, which basically you state that it eroded the trust among the population. Could you explain us what specifically is important or what are the literary inquisitions? Yeah, sure. I think a big concern um, throughout, even though the actual cases is very different because actual cases is, is like, it really reflects how, how suspicious the emperor is. But the goal of this inquisitions or the targets, it, it is about the anti-mentu um, narratives. So like, for obvious reasons, like, one of the weakness of the rule is that they are a different group. And this is just constantly something that um, they can be targeted for. So they were really engaging in this, just making sure that not, like, not even a sign of um, such uh, um, views is being like spread, in, like, especially to the larger population. So if you look at the later history, you know, the White Lotus rebellions or like uh, no, boxer rebellion, repeatedly, it's being repeatedly used. Like simple language such as "oh, let's get rid of uh, uh, the Manchus and then let's like bring back the main, uh, the main dynasty, which is that uh, it is uh, the previous region. So it is like destructive, right? So it is something they have to worry about. So literary inquisition, I think another reason it is, um, it's it's pretty intimidating or it's effective on. Trying to uh, getting the intellectuals in check is because traditionally this is an intellectual that is a literati, right? So it's just like the name of it suggests that it's very core to their identity. So by restricting what they can say and they can uh, they can express is um, and especially in like the poetry they produce, uh, it is um, it is um, I think it which itself is is very. Uh, it, it serves to undermine their identity or their cohesiveness as a group. Or it's also essential way for them to communicate with each other, which now is becoming much less available. So I think for those two reasons, one is it's just, it's it's pretty, uh, it actually has a factor on the survival odds of the emperor and the region, but also it's the, it's the effect on, on the literati um, because it's because of the, the way the, the identity is constructed. How does these literary inquisitions work? 
I mean, as a Westerner, I imagine the Inquisition as being part of the Catholic Church, and it has basically a, a direct structure of governance, and there's this Inquisitor that actually has power. Is it the same in China? Like, there, there was a, a, a people that basically went to different parts of China and tried to oversee that nothing against the emperor was written? It was actually not quite like that. I think they didn't really have a thinking about the difference, right? So this goes back to the difference between a Chinese state and the European state. So it didn't really have um, this type of uh, ruler elites, um, I guess commercial elites, um, or clergy, that type of structure. Right? So it didn't have that. So it had both, mostly it will have a bureaucracy and they'll have local elites. So it didn't have the, the equivalent of those clergies. So I think this is a big difference. So it didn't really have it, like the full-time inquisitors, as you imagine. So instead, they rely on people to, yeah, you rely on things to pop up. And then it was through this pretty random process. And then by some chance, the emperor will see it. Then often it doesn't. And so for the local populations, this is a bit of a, you know, if you're unlucky, You've been just fighting similar things. You might, you might actually get into a, a bad spot or might not. So this is, I think, is a big difference. Um, although I would have to say in the later stage, they did try to do something similar, right? So by sending representatives to, to do like the local government, uh, the local area to see if there's still books that has not been banned or has not been burned. And so and towards like the 1770s, um, they start to send like teams of people. Right? So this is like it's through political campaigns, and then to trying to like find evidence of um, anti-Manchu, uh, mostly the books. Yeah, that, those are like later stages. So the, I imagine that this is more like what the stereotypical conception of a communist regime in the 70s, which is not really that there's an overlord that oversees you, but it's really that you distrust each other and you actually, you are incentivized to communicate this allegiance to the government. Is it something like that? Yeah, I think at the baseline level, it probably um, a, good, a good part of this will be determined by, I guess you would think of this as like a pre-existing um distrust almost like a, right so i think it would be a factor so i think this is a, a right a, it's like a, a right right thing to think about for sure um i think what we're trying to emphasize though is that if you think about it, the actual chance or the timing when those cases gets persecuted um, this is harder to control so you can say well there is some distrust and, um but you know even i reform my neighbor but i it's it's very uncertain if it will turn into a legit case or not. So I think that is a big part of the, um, I guess, what identification is trying to achieve. It's really trying to filter out some of those baseline characteristics. But in terms of the process, I think some of this are just like the truth. And, uh, and it would have to have some of the triggers so people would then, um, be triggered by just people they don't like. And then they would you know, find something, um, you know, not intentionally always, but often it's just they, if they also happen to know something that they think is wrong, then they have a good reason to report it. The other factor that you mentioned is the decrease in charitability, you would say, or the decrease in activity of charitable organizations. How does that work? How does targeted persecution against intellectuals affect 
the provision of charity. Yeah, I think like to um to so there's like two ways to think about this, right? So one is just thinking about the people who run it, right? So the intellectuals, the same people who were being intimidated and scared, they're also the people who does all kinds of things, like not really directly govern their communities, but they are also in in a helpful roles, and this includes providing uh, charitable services. So there is a, this is like a somewhat actually pretty direct way um, for this to if have an influence. But then also the more abstract level. So we have, I'm, I'm really thinking of this as like a, just like a summary measures too, because there's a, things going on in the community, and then people become less trusting. So as an outcome, I think one way to measure this will be collectively how they how much they still willing to contribute, and this would include the efforts and the of the elites, but also of the more ordinary people. And I think charitable organizations is is much more appropriate than any of the other alternative measures out there, and let alone the data availability uh, availability concerns. Okay, great. I've always considered the concept of social capital to be quite ambiguous, quite murky to study, because from one hand, you could say that it negatively affects because lack of social capital, lack of trust, of course, has implications of not cooperating with each other. But also you could say that if the equilibrium is negative, you could cooperate towards a negative achievement. So I've always find kind of ambiguous effect. So in terms of your research, how could you argue that Basically, the lack of social capital acts as a constraint of state repression. But again, you could easily say that it can actually deteriorate a state capability building as well. Yeah, I mean, I do think. Um, so first, I I I don't I fully agree with you on like this view about um, it's like social capital would always be in and like the opposite side to the state building. Um, I think it depends on like what kind of social capital I'm thinking of, right? So if you're thinking of the social capital as clans, which is, which I can see as being like an alternative to the mm-hmm. state, and it is also a very common type of, uh, I guess, as a measure. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it social capital, but it measures something. It measures the alternative to the state. Um, but however, I think though in the in this paper, I'm really what I'm really interested in is uh, is something much more uh, anonymous and much much more of um so that kind of a trust is really between the strangers. Um, which yeah, I think in general we think this is a, a contributing factor um, to you know building a democracy. You're just thinking about you need people to to volunteer and to to vote at least to show up in the vote. So all of that would depend on a willingness to uh, to contribute, and that is what the social capital um, I am focusing on. So rather than thinking of the, like the connectedness of between people, but rather it's you know is are you I think I think um yeah are you willing to trust and and unconditionally right? so this is like why i think trust is becoming a measure of um, social capital is because it's more of attitudes and it's more exogenous to the conditions yeah so w- once the Qing regime ends and basically the inquisition stops operating what makes this to last long term i mean what are the transmissional channels that make this stick for centuries i mean for decades at least 
Yeah, so um, so I think I think about this a lot. Um, to be fair, so I think other than the social capital channel, which I focus on, because there's all those ways I can make sure that there's an a, a there's a fact that I find is actually something that is um that is valid. But I also think it probably influences of like political attitudes or political participation in somewhat more direct ways. So in terms of the main channel, I'm trying to identify, also you call it the social capital, the trust channel. The, the way I view it is that because of the shock, is is fairly specific. So the shock changes how you view, uh, how comfortable you are in dealing with others, uh, but it really not that much else. So it, it is not one of those shocks that also just kill, kills uh, millions of people and then it creates many other uh, consequences and the societies and the economy. So for that reason, I think it is it started off being a relatively uh, easy to identify shock. And then I think it's also about the possibility check. So because of the, all these outcomes, so currently I I find other facts I find, they would be pointing to the channel of the social capital and the trust much more than any of the other possibilities. And so, for example, when I think an obvious candidate would be human capital, but then if I look at the actual outcome, right? So there is pretty good data on, you know, the number of uh, exam participants or successful candidates both passed the, the highest level and the, and the second highest level of exam. You don't really see a change. So it looks like, it, you know, inquisition doesn't really change how how much human capital people require. If you look at um, other closely related measures, actually, you're thinking of... Uh, no, I mean there's a limited number of things that are available, but <laughs> if you look at those, you don't really see an effect either. Uh, whereas with trust, you, you know, the collective action, which I mean, it's pretty clear there is a pretty strong qualitative account on how people change their behavior at the time, and then there's also both this charitable organization data, which I can look at in. in uh, uh, in a fairly rigorous way because you have data before and after and also across the country, across region, um, at a, um, no, a decade level. Um, but it's also other measures of uh, same thing, you know, such as like how, how able people are organizing themselves to be those agencies and to fund like, other candidates, which basically wouldn't benefit them much at all. It's not like a self-interested behavior. It really is about the willingness to contribute. So it is, I think it is through those methods um, I can uh, identify them, I, the mechanism and then first it will just be a hypothesis and then you're trying to check it against other alternatives. And then once it's after the Qing period, when the political repression goes away, I think there's a little more I can do because then I can you know, do some falsification. If it is just about the attitudes, then I expect it to affect certain outcomes, but not others, and to change outcomes when the institutions are being fixed, even when the institutions have been fixed and they hold the constant. So there is like a little bit more I can do um, after this period. I actually find that quite relevant, quite interesting uh, about the, your work, the emphasis on how autocratic policies reinforce the attitudes towards them. Like if basically it makes the the regime more long lasting. So how 
I mean, this of course applies to China in itself, but in general, how does one break from these perverse equilibriums? Like in terms, I mean, this is the obvious question that they always ask economic historians. Like, is it uh, is it the historical experience predetermines your long development path, or is it something that you can do? How do you break this apathy towards policy at the local level? Yes. Uh, so in the paper, I actually find like two quite different ways for the autocracy to reinforce itself. So in terms of the first, um, the 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 first, like, the first outcome, I actually think it is not not as pessimistic as you just described it. Because if you think about the actual results, it is saying that the people were not really been more inclined to autocracy, but rather it's just those who would have otherwise speak up and now it's just gonna go silent so this could actually be built in a different way which is the you might have we might have overestimated how much they like autocracy so we are really looking at a selected sample of people those who would have said no i don't like the way it goes and they have just been like opt out so that's how i see it so i think if we think this is the main way for autocracy to reinforce itself then the solution would be some kind of a shock right, to change like how um how people express themselves or it, you know, it would be like an intervention um which i think political scientists have done some of those experiments or to even just do some of those interventions i think my results would support that approach but however though i also find something is harder to uh, harder to change i guess a different equilibrium outcome which is a bit harder to intervene uh, which is once you have this because because of the trust problem that i just mentioned it because then it undermines the democracy itself or the potential to build a democracy so that is harder because it basically says it will become much harder for them to to organize amongst themselves uh, means even if they have a democracy, then they would not be able to do it very well. So I think that's the harder part. Um, it's not clear how you break out of that. And also, I think because you will become harder, it will become harder for them to supply like public goods and efficiently, and it might just become like economically uh, superior to have like an autocracy or to have like a state-led model of the economy. So that is, I think it's unclear. I mean, I, I think it is hidden, I, I guess, somewhere in the, in the implied in the paper that that is what it's become. And that could be one of the reasons why it has really been a uh, past dependency in, in, auto, in autocratic regions, which you do see around the world. Um, that is, um, I don't know how common it is or like, how important it is as like, um, you know, how, how much it actually accounts for the, the persistence of autocratic regions, but it it it, it I think I can um, so in my results it it's, it it is there so it, I think it is uh, it is pretty obvious, um, and I I I I don't I don't um, I don't have a great uh, sense of how we break out of that um, that that feedback loop. Returning a little bit to your research question in specific. Do you see any regional variation or how could you, I mean, like in terms of north-south or also between communities of different minorities, like I would say people more attached to the Manchu are less persecuted than majority Han? Possible. Well, I mean, in terms of um, 
So I try to account for this in modern data. Historically, it's harder, but I should probably do that as well. Now that you mentioned that, I think it's a, a it's it's something I was thinking about. Um, it's probably true because I think the Mongols collaborated first with the Manchu. Basically, they got too different from each other, and they they have a similar lifestyle, and they I think they also were allies, in in taking over the Han the Han Chinese. Um, so they were probably not right. So, so my in my sample is it's basically all Han Chinese. So like like they're the only group that was persecuted. So so put it differently. Um, but yes, what you're saying is right because at the regional level, right? Because my data is at the regional level. So it is true if the region has more Han Chinese, a higher percentage of them, they would just be more having more persecutions or having a higher chance. So that is right. I I think right now I'm um yeah like historical data wise I assume a Han Chinese majority which is pretty close to choose because the majority of uh, those prefectures I'm looking at will be settled mostly by the Han Chinese but I think it's worth to be uh, being more careful yeah mm. Mm. another thing that I mean of course you don't look into that in in, in your paper itself but. I just thought about while reading it is that if the trust channel is what matters the most, I think you would find that through migration. Like you see a lot of migration of Chinese people to South Asia in general. So if if this if this channel persists through time and is just cultural, then you would see the kind of the same effect in other parts of, of Southeast Asia that are not China, right? Yeah, I, I think, um, so a hard part will be trying to find their origin, but I think there might be some kind of a survey uh, available and not just like showing their Chinese, but also showing what specific parts of China they're from. Uh, it's possible. Yeah, it's worth checking. I think like the Southeast Asians, the Chinese of Chinese origin, they tend to keep like pretty good records. Like, surprisingly enough, like no, they are able to trace back to their you know, grand grandparents, and and, and uh, they know where what specific part of the specific part of the China they're from. Uh, but it does, yeah, maybe I wonder if they're one of the census, like in the Philippines or Malaysia, they might actually ask those additional questions. Uh, if so, then it would be it would be useful. Mm. I haven't done it. Uh, that's okay. I mean, I just thought about it while reading your paper. So th thank you very much, Melanie. It was, a, it was I really f loved uh, reading your paper and in general your research about China and state building in China, which I think is fascinating. Anything else that you would like to add? Um, well, yeah, yeah, it also really enjoyed it. Um, I, think, I think you ask great questions. Like, I think that's like, a, um, it's really nice to think, think about it as, as well. I think it's a great way to introduce the paper. Uh, I just hope that you will have great success with the, the podcast. I think I'm sure it will be great. Yeah, I think it's very, uh, it's very useful. It's also for, useful for me to uh, just to like reflect on the papers and, and see what I, if there's any, like, um, if those ends to tie up so I, I really enjoyed that yeah thanks well, for thank inviting you. <laughs> the past exerts historical inertia that ends up affecting the present and the future state building is a complex process that can be easily captured by specific groups for its own purposes 
Qing persecution in 17th century China targeted intellectuals and local community leaders, creating an environment of distrust and apathy towards the local government that has replicated through time. But dependence is not destiny. However, understanding its existence is the first step needed to break it. This has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Penn underscore Exchange. Stay tuned and see you next time.